You know, I watched when it was live the uh, Ashley Simpson SNL performance. Do you remember that? The one where Ashley Simpson was lip syncing. Definitely dating myself with this reference. But back before we had social media, uh, that was one of one of the moments for that year. You know what I mean? Every year got a couple of like huge moments. Now we get one every day, but that was like one of the ones that people talked about for years and years. Yeah, something that uh, you know, our our Zoomer listeners won't have experienced is uh is yeah, there used to be a scarcity of viral clips. Uh, you know, it used to be you'd go on to Ebom's world, and I feel like this happened for five years or more, where you were just watching the same clips on Ebom's world and places like that. And it was, yeah, it was Ashley Simpson uh, where she started lip syncing. And then I guess the band was playing a different song than she thought. And she started dancing around. Wasn't like Jude Law also on that episode? Yeah, Jude Law was the host. And that musical performance faded out awkwardly into a commercial. And then at the end of the show, the two of them were on stage together. And Jude Law was like, well, I've just been talking to Ashley. And uh, and uh, she had some acid reflux. And that threw everybody off. Isn't that right, Ashley? Yeah, that's right. Nothing to see here. Anyway, good night. And then, you know, the official story crumbled pretty quickly after that. Did you see the Janet Jackson Super Bowl thing live? Were you watching that? I never saw any of this stuff live, but that was the second one that came to mind of these kind of clips that were, yeah, viral, not for a day or a few days. Six months. I mean, six months, definitely. But then they remained as these deep cultural reference points for a matter of years in a way that nothing can anymore because uh, there's just such an abundance of content now, such an abundance of image and because everything is so ephemeral. Yeah, kids today, they'll never appreciate the Janet Jackson Super Bowl footage, you know? They don't understand, you know, real culture real discourse like like we did anyway welcome back to michael and us i'm will sloan here as always with luke savage welcome back folks guys like us you and me luke we position ourselves in the lineage of great men and i'm sure that you'll agree that one of the great men of our time is elon musk however what if i were to tell you that he is actually not all that he's cracked up to be Your response, Luke? Well, he's a 21st century Napoleon. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the reason I bring him up, and listen, I know you're all tired of hearing about Elon Musk, but he's one of the dudes of our time. He's one of the guys. Uh, Well, I I would say he is genuinely the face of the moment, although not in the sense that he would perhaps want. Why is the face of the moment always a gargoyle these days? Why can't we have a nice one? Why is it always a bad face? You know, I still haven't uh, dug into his channel at all, but I keep seeing on my TV every time I fire it up. uh, That guy, Mr. Beast. And his just... Is Mr. Beast all over your TV screen? I've never actually clicked on one of his videos, so the algorithm has saved me for the time being. I've never clicked on one of his videos either, but I'm just being being shown him. And I mean, I, I think he he has the biggest YouTube channel in the world, if I'm if I'm not wrong about that. And yeah, every single Mr. Beast thumbnail is him soy facing in front of something, some kind of building or you know body of water or something. Uh, I don't know. We've been told by many listeners that we need. To do a deep dive into Mr. Beast. And uh, to that, I would say uh, get the Patreon up another thousand subs a month and, and we'll talk. 
Yeah, I have nothing against Mr. Beast. I don't know who he is. I don't really know what his deal is, but just... No, I don't know who he is either, but he's everywhere, and I didn't ask to see him. Yeah, I would just say about him, you know, as one content warrior to another, uh, any fellow content warrior who gets that popular, I'm I'm rooting for, uh, because we're all in it together, you know, in this crazy (laughs) career path that we've forged. Uh, Anyway, returning to Elon Musk... Uh, an even more consequential figure than Mr. Beast. Uh, I was reading a delightful article in the New York Review of Books by one Ben Tarnoff that's a review of the recent biography of Elon Musk, the one by Walter Isaacson. I'm sure anytime you've walked past a chapter's indigo, you've seen it amongst the other Heather's picks. Oh my God, I've seen it everywhere. Like it's one of those books where they don't just have copies of it. They actually stack up like little forts, little citadels of the books, like they've just rolled off an assembly line. Well, I was interested to learn from this piece that it was Musk who actually sought out Walter Isaacson. And Isaacson, you know, he wrote that Steve Jobs biography that very much the precursor to this book. That was another Heather's Picks classic. So Elon Musk very much, you know, sought out Isaacson and wanted to have a great man biography written about him gave him all access, let him interview anybody, didn't have a heavy hand in the editorial process, but obviously with the understanding that a certain kind of portrait would emerge, which is this guy, Elon Musk, uh, he's a firm taskmaster, maybe a bit of an unpleasant fellow. If you have him as your boss, uh, he might be a bit of a jerk, but doggone it, it's the jerks who can maybe save the world. Anyway, Tarnoff in this article does a pretty good job dissecting Elon Musk and sort of from the evidence given by Isaacson, determining what Elon Musk's actual talents are. I mean, it will be no shock to you, Luke, that his Promethean visions haven't amounted to a great deal. And it will be no shock to you if I tell you that his real talents are, one, very effective capitalist. Very effective at keeping costs down and keeping profits up. Going on the factory floor and saying, we can do that cheaper. And his other big skill is, of course, self-promotion. Although it seems that has started to, um, well, we'll get to that in a sec. But, you know, throughout the book, Isaacson makes a case for Musk as, you know, one of the crazy ones who changes the world. Tarnoff writes, At first glance, there is something incongruous about Isaacson's embrace of Musk as an enemy of the establishment, given the author's high standing within it. Isaacson is the consummate insider, well-networked in the worlds of media and politics, with a resume that includes stints running Time, CNN, and the Aspen Institute, a prominent think tank that convenes a Davos-like gathering in Colorado every year. If Musk endangers the status quo, Isaacson would have a lot to lose. But Musk, on closer inspection, is a particular kind of rebel. He has defied some aspects of capitalist conventional wisdom, namely that cars and rockets are bad businesses, but only in the service of becoming a better capitalist. This is the sort of bounded contrarianism that gets you invited to the Aspen Ideas Festival. Now, this article climaxes, much as Isaacson's book does, with Musk's recent takeover of Twitter, or uh, as it is now known, the X platform. A name so shitty that even Musk himself was on stage for like an hour recently uh, being interviewed, and he referred to it as Twitter several times. X is a name that Musk has been trying to get to catch on for over 20 years now. He's called various ventures, various like online commerce platforms, X, and the market Market research has always shown that people think it sounds porny. They don't they don't like it. 
it doesn't sound good. Does Ben have any insight in the piece you're reading from into why Musk has made of this like weird fetish out of the letter X? I mean, it's it's is it just uh, it's near the end of the alphabet? Uh, you don't see it in a lot of words, so it's it's not a letter that appears in very many words. It's kind of vaguely associated for reasons I can't quite put my finger on with space in some way. Not a lot of insight into that, although Tarnoff also mentions that in addition to the rather porny quality of the name, another problem was that in the early days of the internet over 20 years ago, people were wary of doing commerce over the internet. It seemed like a very unstable platform. So X, like that name didn't help either because it, it sounds fake. It doesn't sound like a real site. Uh, but no, I don't know why. I, I would imagine probably for the most simple-minded reason, he probably thinks it's cool. He probably thinks it's uh, rebellious in some way. You know, that's the bad boy letter. Yeah, it's the 50-something man wearing an ill-fitting leather jacket of letters. But, you know, the book has to end with Musk taking over Twitter, which is a venture in which all of his issues as a man and a businessman have kind of been laid bare. Musk has gotten obviously rather strange lately. <laughs> Tarnoff notes that on stage at the New York Times Deal Book Summit in November 2023, when asked about companies pulling ads from X after his endorsement of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, Musk responded with indignation. If somebody's going to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself, he said. For years, he had managed to bind his will to power and the profit motive together into a productive partnership. The ongoing Twitter debacle suggests that this concordance is coming apart, that his inner despot is disencumbering itself of the discipline of capital. And one last point here, Tarnoff writes... There is an anti-modern impulse to Musk, a craving for lordship that can't be entirely satisfied within the confines of a capitalist economy. A king doesn't have advertisers or shareholders or customers, and Musk, if he continues on his current trajectory, may very well be abandoned by all three. Um, I think that's a really great point, actually. Because the last year or two years of Musk running Twitter has raised a question for any of us who have only been casual Musk observers in the past of like, well, wait, didn't this guy used to at least be good at being a capitalist? And this article for me answers that question. He's not anymore because he's seeking something else. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think Ben Tarnoff puts it very well. But before we talk more about that, I mean, I do think it's just worth saying, I mean, I think Musk was worth something like $20 billion uh, when the pandemic started. When somebody's worth so many billions of dollars, it almost becomes a metaphysical question what well, what their wealth even means anymore. But, you know, he didn't go from $20 billion to, you know, hundreds of billions because he made some great business decision or something like that, or because he was associated with some new good that sold widely just benefited from the pandemic windfall of governments pumping money into the global economy, which sort of just underscores how ridiculous all of the sort of entrepreneurial myths around guys like him really are. Like the dogma that their sycophants cling to is that, you know, these people make stuff, they break the rules, they revolutionize society, and then they get money, which is just a reward that's proportionate to that contribution. It's like, okay, well, if in a matter of months, you can go from $20 billion to hundreds of billions of dollars, because like policymakers, in various countries and various central banks did a bunch of like financial sorcery. It's like, yeah, you're not, you're not producing anything. It's bullshit. 
But no, I think that assessment of his reign at Twitter is absolutely right. And this is really why Musk is very much the face of the moment. I mean, among other things, we're living through a period where I think it's it's fair to say that the American right in particular is being you know animated by increasingly bizarre kinds of cultural resentment. You know, this, this absolutely absurd uh, persecution complex. There's various people who've sort of drifted or found themselves suddenly uh, you know, waking up one day and sounding like cultural conservatives complaining about Hollywood, complaining about the libs, all the rest of it, whose issue really isn't about money or class position or anything like that. It's about the fact that they don't get enough damn respect. You know, and you saw that, uh, you know, in the Trump era, you know, an earlier incarnation of this where Donald Trump, uh, his election was supposed to make it. So, you know, the libs can't make fun of us anymore. But then it turns out, uh, well, guess what? Hollywood is still liberal. Like cable news is still mostly, you know, a Aside from one network is still mostly liberal. You know, the media class, broadly speaking, tends liberal. Celebrity culture does just like the culture of you know much of the American middle class in many ways leans liberal. And there's like nothing you can do about it. And like electing the guy that triggers the libs doesn't do anything about it. And coming back to Musk, he's made many reforms to the platform that has, have all made it considerably shittier. But obviously, his biggest one or his most visible one was uh, what he did with the blue check marks, which was significant in two ways one of which is intimately related to uh, the observation of the passage you just read. Firstly, because the blue check mark, which you are now going to have to you know, pay for, was an attempt uh, by Musk to monetize Twitter's user base and you know, replace uh, at least a share of its advertising revenue that way. And I haven't looked at the figures for a few months. I haven't seen the latest ones, but I mean, at least for the first six months to a year of that, uh, it wasn't working at all. No one wants to pay for fucking blue check mark, or at least not in sufficient numbers. That's very typical product of like the kind of brain that Walter Isaacson is clearly celebrating in his book where it's like, oh, he's he's such a good capitalist. He figures out things like, oh, well, there's something we haven't commodified yet. What if we just like made people pay for something that used to be free? But then secondly, and this is, I think, the more important thing in some ways, like all these guys who, you know, these fucking Bitcoin losers you'd never heard about before, all the NFT hucksters, all these like random right wing influencers who like we've never heard of, but they've somehow built a following of like a million people on YouTube by complaining about children's movies or whatever. They all got blue check marks and they thought, now, finally, the badge of respect. I now have the credential and it will be a talisman against the libs making fun of me. They're all going to have to buy my Pepe NFT now. And I don't know. I mean, (laughs) this speaks to many things, but I mean, one of them is just the extent to which everybody is now too chronically online. Like to put that much weight, cultural and even moral weight behind whether you have this like little thing comprised of, I don't know, a few hundred pixels next to your Twitter handle to think that there's actual status that comes with that or that somehow like status is like epiphenomenal of that. And not just that previously lots of the people who had those things were people who were celebrities. So they they had, you know, they had fame, they had cultural cachet, they had cultural capital already. Yeah, everyone should just log the fuck off, especially Elon Musk, although I also don't want him to log off because I find a lot of his posts extremely funny. Well, I can't log off. I'm just having too much fun on there with all my friends. Uh, Luke, what do you think of the Democratic Party? Oh, man. Uh, Well, they've been on a roll uh, lately. I mean, I was tempted to talk in detail about the latest Democratic triangulation around this this bipartisan immigration bill. I don't think we need to go 
into too much detail about it. Uh, people can read. Uh, there's a very good write up in the Nation from uh, Adam Johnson, who's been uh, following it uh, quite closely and, and reporting on it very well. But I mean, basically, as a connoisseur of liberal triangulation, I mean, I think this has got to be. This is like a top three, you know. Everyone disagrees when you have these like top five, top 10 lists. It's like, you know, you got to have Sergeant Pepper, you got to have Kind of Blue. And then I don't know, number three might be the Democrats triangulating on immigration in 2024. What's number one? Welfare reform in the 90s? Yeah, that one is pretty good. It's either that or Obama trying to cut Social Security and then and then complaining when like the Freedom Caucus wouldn't let him because he wasn't giving them enough. This is kind of the same thing in some way. Like this is the political equivalent of being like, like the food is terrible and the portions are too small. The Democrats offered people like Chris Murphy, you know, senator from Connecticut. Uh, speaking of online, I mean, one of my one of my least favorite presences on Twitter. He helped negotiate. You know, he was on the team that helped negotiate this bill. They're basically like giving the Republicans the Trump border agenda, and then you know the Republicans don't want to pass it because it's part of this giant bundle of other things. You know, some of which they object to. And the line from people like Chris Murphy, uh, the senator from Hawaii, Brian something, Brian Schwartz, is it? Who's last name? I'm forgetting. Their line has been to complain about how embarrassing it is that the Republican Party won't help them pass this. I think I can't remember which Democratic senator it was who had a tweet that was literally like, we gave them everything they want and they still voted against it. I mean, imagine talking that way. And especially imagine talking that way about a suite of policies that just a few short years ago, people like Chris Murphy were calling literal fascism. Like all that stuff throughout the Trump era about kids in cages and you know Chris Murphy's posts about what to do now that there's going to be a fresh round of ice raids, how to hide your, you know, how to hide your family, all that stuff. Now they're just trying to do it. And then they're whining that the Republicans won't play ball. And as Adam points out in his piece, they're going further because if you watch a lot of Democratic spokespeople, the interviews they're doing on TV, the line they're taking is only we're serious about the border. Only we want to get tough on the problem at the border. So this is something beyond triangulation because they're not even presenting the original bill as like something regrettable they had to negotiate in order to get a bunch of important stuff done. No, no, no. They're just ideologically in sympathy with the bill, which again is full of things that like a few short years ago they were calling literal fascism. But nevertheless, we're not going to talk about that in great detail. Uh, What did you think about... Did you watch the Biden press conference, which was staged as a let's reassure everybody that his brain is not melting? This is the press conference where he gets to come out and show what a mentally fit, what a great memory he has, how absolutely not too old to be president he is. And it worked like a charm. Bronco was sending me updates the whole time. For people who don't know, that's uh, my colleague Bronco Markatich, the Biden whisperer. And it was so funny to, to see him like live react to it because things just kept getting more insane. And, you know, Bronco has spent so much time like reading Biden, listening to Biden, watching Biden. He really knows how Biden's mind works. If he's reacting this way, uh, we know we're in uh, uncharted territory. You know, it's no secret that Biden over the last couple of years, you know, he's uh, he's had some flubs. He's not quite as great at, you know, speaking in public as he was, you know, four or eight years ago. And I don't think it's acting in too bad faith to say that a lot in the media have sort of protected him. You know, we don't see those clips in the same way that we would see funny clips of Trump or George W. Bush flubs. But I don't know, when you have a press conference that's the I'm fit for office press conference, 
and then you come out and you give a poor performance at it. There's kind of only so much that even a sympathetic media can do. I mean, it's really putting a target on your back. It was quite arrogant of them to even have that press conference. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And yeah, I was amused when midway through it, a reporter asked Biden, you know, you've said previously that, uh, you know, there are many Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why are you sticking around? And he was like, because I'm the most qualified person to be the president of the United States. And it's like, buddy, if that's true, <laughs> I mean, a president should not be speaking so ill of his fellow citizens. I mean, good God. But there have been some developments sort of, uh, I, I mean, not exactly behind the scenes, but I mean, there have been a number of op-eds from senior people uh, connected to the Democratic Party that have started to finally uh, sort of broach. Uh, maybe it's not such a good idea to run Biden. Maybe, you know, his mind actually is going. And maybe uh, given that his campaign's entire message is all about, you know, steady hands and how he's the competent choice uh, and, you know, where, you know, chaos lies with four more years of Trump. Maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. I was happy in a way. I mean, insofar as it's possible to be happy about U.S. politics at all anymore. Uh, but to hear the kind of the tone of the reporters at that press conference, because, you know, they just weren't having it. Right. And, and there were times where Biden, like they're just speaking over him. There appears to be, you know, at least the beginnings of just a total breakdown in this facade. But I mean, Biden was like, I mean, you said he sounded more lucid four years ago. I mean, those debates in 2019 and 2020, they were completely insane. And the media just entirely ignored it. Not just the long rambly answers, not that insane answer Biden gave, which I, I think it was to a question about racism. And he just started talking about record players and how you should play the radio, make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the make sure that kids hear words. There was all that shit, all that like bizarre rambly shit. But then there was just like the, the things where he was mashing different stories together and telling these stories in lucid detail, elaborate detail that were completely untrue. True. There was like the three different versions of the story that was about how it's okay to be gay. One in which Biden's father told him on a beach that the two men they'd seen holding hands love each other and that's okay. One in which Biden is the dad in the story and he's telling it to one son. I believe there was a version where it was a different son in the story. And then, of course, there was the thing right before South Carolina about getting arrested uh, trying to see Nelson Mandela in South Africa uh, in the <laughs> 1980s, which like that's the kind of thing which in previous decades really would have just been a campaign ending moment. I mean, Biden's own campaign for president in the late 80s ended after he uh, lied about, I believe it was his grades, said he came out of the civil rights movement, a lie that he started repeating again in 2019 and 2020. What he actually meant was, uh, you know, he was around when the civil rights movement was happening and he worked one summer at a pool that had, you know, a partly black clientele. <laughs> It's hardly marching on Selma, is it? And the other one, which, of course, was just plagiarizing that speech of Neil Kinnock's. I mean, just like whole cloth stealing Neil Kinnock's speech, a speech which was entirely based on Kinnock's own personal autobiography, which meant that Biden was also plagiarizing like someone else's autobiography and like inserting himself into the story. Wouldn't be the only time he stole my own life story about getting arrested trying to visit Nelson Mandela in South Africa. How do you think I felt when I heard that? <laughs> but I mean, like, good God, in 2020, I thought, OK, liberals have invested themselves so much in the idea that we live in a post-truth era because of Donald Trump. Like, surely this will be a thing. Surely people will see this with their own eyes. They'll be watching these debates. They'll be like, what the fuck was Biden talking about, about record players and stuff like that? 
And no, it turned out it didn't matter when Buttigieg didn't work out, when Beto didn't work out, when Kamala Harris didn't work out. And there was a risk that Bernie Sanders was going to win the Democratic nomination. It's like, okay, let's just smash the emergency glass. None of that stuff mattered. So I don't know how this ends. I don't know how this finally comes toppling down. I mean, there is an important detail that came out in the press conference that Biden was asked about that. I mean, I do think this is kind of a new frontier because as part of this special counsel that was investigating Biden, and, you know, this was one of the things, the main thing that he was addressing at the uh, press conference. I just want to read from the uh, special counsel documents here. This relates to uh, conversations between Biden and uh, his ghostwriter. In addition, Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited, both during his recorded interviews with the ghostwriter in 2017 and in his interview with our office in 2023, so the Office of the Special Prosecutor. And his cooperation with our investigation, including by reporting to the government that the Afghanistan documents were in his Delaware garage, will likely convince some jurors that he made an innocent mistake rather than acting willfully, that is, with intent to break the law as the statute requires. Skipping ahead a bit, Mr. Biden's recorded conversations with his ghostwriter from 2017 are often painfully slow, with Mr. Biden struggling to remember events and straining at times to read and relay his own notebook entries. In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. Quote, if it was 2013, uh, when did I stop being vice president? And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. In 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had, quote, a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry when, in fact, Eikenberry was an ally who Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. So, I mean, good God. And of course, there's been the recent episodes where Biden was talking about a meeting with the German president, Francois Mitterrand, correcting himself. Actually, of course, it was with uh, the French President Francois Mitterrand, you know, this recent conversation he's had. Well, Francois Mitterrand's been dead since 1996. He obviously meant Emmanuel Macron. And then in the press conference, uh, the one to reassure everyone that everything's fine and there's steady hands at the wheel. He referred to uh, Sisi, the president of Egypt, in the context of talking about discussions related to Gaza as uh, the president of Mexico. So, yeah, it's going great. Welcome to Hawthorne Island. You're paying for an experience. This is insane. Who are you? Why do you care? I have to know if you're with us or with them. On November 18, this entire evening has been painstakingly planned. What the hell is going on? All part of the menu. It's okay. No, we're going to die today. Yes. Yeah. The menu. Read on. November 18th. Well, before we get to the movie, it's been a few weeks since we did the plug for the Michael and Us Patreon, so why not? Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Extra episode every week, plus some bonus content. Recent Patreon episodes have included discussions of Yasujiro Ozu's final film, An Autumn Afternoon. The recent Timothy Chalamet Willy Wonka film, uh, Is There Ideology in It? Uh, well, you'll have to pay to find out. As well as about the movie Saltburn that's been uh, blowing up TikTok these days. A uh, very divisive film, and uh, you get to find out where we fall on the divide. So patreon.com slash Michael and us. Lots of other extra content as well. Interviews, discussions that couldn't fit in anywhere. Uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Good value for money, I would say. 
Now, moving on to our movie on this episode, uh, we talked about Saltburn on this week's Patreon episode, which got us in the mood for another movie from the current wave of Eat the Rich or Eat the Rich adjacent movies. Movies like Triangle of Sadness, movies like Parasite, movies like Glass Onion, you know, this wave of films. And so we picked The Menu from 2022, starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Ray Fiennes. I don't necessarily have a smart way to get into this one. I will say just off the top, uh, I've now seen this movie twice. I saw it the first time maybe six months ago on uh, my favorite app, Disney Plus, and I watched it again also on my favorite app, Disney Plus. I'm eating the rich via Disney Plus and I'm loving it. And I wish I had stronger feelings about this movie. I think this is a competently executed movie. Uh, I think it's got an amusing performance by Ray Fiennes at its center. I think he and Anya Taylor-Joy generate some interesting chemistry. You know, I think it's also a movie that kind of announces what it's going to do and then does it competently, but I'm struggling right now to have a take on it. I think possibly you have a take. Let's hear your take. Well, yeah, I mean, just first impressions. Uh, I've seen this film twice as well. And uh, I don't know, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. I was saying recently uh, in one of our other discussions that I do like to just note when something is tightly written and entertaining and works and it's a real movie, which this definitely is. There are good performances. I think it has an interesting conceit that's well executed. It's not exactly subtle, but I also don't think the film is too heavy handed about executing its conceit either. I think it's fertile terrain on which to continue the discussion we began on our Patreon episode this week. You know, Saltburn is a film that sort of announces itself at the beginning as one of these Eat the Rich movies, and then it becomes something else. The only way to find out is by subscribing at patreon.com slash Michael and us. But we've been talking about this class of Eat the Rich movies. Also, there's TV shows. You know, I mentioned a few of them last time. You've mentioned a few of the movies, but there's also things like Succession and White Lotus, both of which, you know, I quite like, I really enjoy, and I, which I think are very well done. Now, if there's a possible tension to be explored here, and you've alluded to it already by doing the paid advertising for Disney Plus that we're starting this week, a big thank you to our sponsors, by the way. Many of these films and TV shows have a sort of eat the rich bent. You know, they satirize rich people and the kind of, you know, absurd and farcical worlds that they inhabit. But they also, I think, to some extent, allow you to sort of revel in the luxury and comfort of the worlds that are being depicted. Uh, And I think it's not an accident that uh, this movie, uh, much like Glass Onion, which was the Knives Out sequel, and White Lotus as well, the COVID-19 pandemic is built into all of these things. And I don't think that's an accident either. You know, it's funny, when I saw Knives Out, I mean, I think I saw it the day it came out and haven't really thought about it much since. But I remember being kind of annoyed by how the pandemic was part of the story. I remember thinking, can't we just have diversions from this? Like, let's let's ground our fantasy. Let's ground our fiction in a world where we're not all stuck indoors and people aren't like suffering from a deadly disease. But in retrospect, I realized that, you know, the conceit is actually part of the, the project of films and shows like this. Because, of course, the pandemic was a, was a period of rapidly accelerating inequality. And yeah, people like Elon Musk getting 900% richer or whatever it was, while ordinary people have to stay indoors and where workers are having to be exposed to COVID, all while the value of their wages is decreasing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a spectrum to be had here. I think some films and shows in this mold revel in the worlds they show you more or less than others. 
I think, and I mentioned this on our Patreon discussion this week, that there's also clearly just a market because there's so many downwardly mobile people who were brought up in a world where they were told they were going to be upwardly mobile. There's definitely a market for entertainment, which sort of allows you to revel in an identity as like a, a temporarily embarrassed member of the upper middle class. So, you know, you can see these worlds depicted, you can see the rich lampooned, and you can also think, okay, I'm not part of this world, but like, I, I understand this. Like, I know food. I know about the cool things on luxury resorts, et cetera, et cetera. The most cynical interpretation of this emergent micro genre would be a company like Disney has also realized that there's a market for populism now. Economic populism can be one of these things that gets fed into the algorithm again. I mean, you know, that's, well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. I don't think there's true. any uh, doubt about that. It's true. Uh, although I don't necessarily think that should be used to knock the movies themselves. That absolutely doesn't invalidate the genre. It doesn't invalidate films of this kind. But I think it's undeniable, right? I mean, things get greenlit because investors think, uh, well, this will make money. That is always happening in response to, you know, market incentives. When we've been talking about these movies, I felt a certain process of navigating a matrix of uh, my own politics versus what I want from an aesthetically pleasing, emotionally involving, uh, thought-provoking movie, and the extent to which it conforms to my politics matters, to what extent it doesn't matter, to what extent politics are separable from aesthetics, etc., etc. And I don't necessarily have any dogmas to lay down about this, because, you know, when we talked about Saltburn, the fact that it was politically muddled I thought was interesting and amusing. I mentioned that Triangle of Sadness had kind of rubbed me the wrong way because of its epic centrist politics. And now here's a movie where the politics are basically just fine. And this movie is also, I think, more successful than something like Saltburn in certain ways, on certain aesthetic grounds, in that the script is pretty tight, as you say, and it's shorter and it's punchier and it's a little less pretentious and it delivers. If you go see this movie on a Tuesday night, you'll probably have a pretty good time with it. So I guess I basically have no dogmas to lay down about what the correct approach for these movies is, except maybe that I would ask them to show me something true and show me something interesting. And I don't know to what extent this movie passes that test for me. Maybe 60 or 65 or 70 percent it passes the show me something true, show me something interesting test. I would just maybe return to a point that I made off the top, which is that this movie shows you what it's going to do, and then it does it very efficiently and very competently. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And I guess then the question is, you know, whether you're glass half full or glass half empty <laughs> about that. Before we discuss the movie in detail, before we talk about the plot, I do just want to shout out a very good and I think perceptive essay published uh, almost exactly a year ago in Vulture by Sam Adler Bell. Uh, it's called The Movie Industry's Confused Eat the Rich Fantasy. And I think Sam does a good job of parsing some of the different strands of these things. And he does so in a way that he's expressing his own appreciation of some of them, his own enjoyment of some of them, while also identifying, you know, some of the underlying contradictions that may be found in this genre. He writes, Never in human history have we possessed so capacious a knowledge of the various and specific iniquities of the world, and so little hope of them ever being rectified. Evil abounds, justice is scarce. In this context, the promise of otherworldly damnation is a solace. Quote, We need to believe that the powerful can suffer, that they can be humiliated, that they can be made to feel there is no way out. Theologian Adam Cotton writes of this dilemma. If there can't be any hope for us, we can at least hope that one day there will be hopelessness for the destroyers of our hope. Hell, in other words, is our consolation prize for the futile dream of justice, a damnation deferred. 
My enemies are in power, but I can picture them in flames. And so it goes of late at the movies. So Sam uh, goes on to uh, mention many of the uh, films and shows we've already brought up. Uh, He continues, As critics have noted, there is an element of feeble wish fulfillment in these works, an unctuous eagerness to flatter the audience's moral sensibilities while satiating a furtive lust for class warfare. Somehow, hostility to the ultra-rich has become a marker of modish cultural literacy. At other times, a frisson of class consciousness serves only as an alibi for an audience eager to live vicariously in luxury. As viewers, we get to have it both ways, indulge in a fantasy of extravagance, and then, remembering we'll never have it for ourselves, relish watching it turn to literal shit. Now, in the next paragraph, uh, he talks about Triangle of Sadness and, and also the menu, which he says is explicit in its class sympathies, but still confused in its politics or, you know, th- their politics, referring to both films. Watching these films, I found my class rage dissipating, giving way to pity in proportion to the degree of suffering on screen and the cruelty and relish with which it was inflicted. The targets are cartoonishly deserving, but even caricatures can bleed, weep and shriek. In these moments, the moral valence seems to flip from a didactic invitation to enjoy this carnival of comeuppance to pious scolding. Be careful what you wish for. Like Slowick's guests in the menu, we are served a delicious concoction and then punished for wanting to eat it. So I can't think of a better sort of runway into discussing the movie than that. The action unfolds at Hawthorne, an elite restaurant with all the signifiers of eliteness. It's housed in a piece of modernist architecture on a private island accessible only by private boat, and the dinner is enormously expensive, upwards of $1,200. It is presided over by Chef Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes. The movie takes place over one long night, where a group of gargoyles of the ultra-rich are assembled. We do provide spoiler warnings on this podcast, actually, despite what Luke said on a previous episode. So here is a spoiler warning. From here on, we'll be getting into the twists. Not unlike Jigsaw from the Saw movies, Chef Slowick tailors his dishes around the sins of his diners and offs many of them one by one. The diners include Lillian Bloom, played by Janet McTeer, a snooty food critic who helped create the mystique around Ray Fine's character. There's a wealthy older couple, Richard and Anne, who are regulars and represent the kind of patrons who are the bread and butter of a restaurant like this. Uh, the great John Leguizamo appears as George Diaz, a fading movie star, along with his personal assistant. There's a table of tech bros. Uh, they do a literal toast to money. But the most important characters are Nicholas Holt as Tyler, a yuppie who is also a self-styled foodie and who hero-worships Chef Slowick, really wants to follow in Chef Slowick's footsteps. And he has a plus one, Margot, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who, again, spoilers, it is revealed at some point in the second act that she is actually a hired escort, whose real name is Aaron. We find out over the course of the evening that this group, unknowingly to them, has been assembled by Chef Slowick very much by design. They all represent different factors of why he, a great artist, has become alienated from his art. But Margot is the one member of this group who's not supposed to be there. She's the glitch in the Matrix. She's also, importantly, the only member of the working class, or perhaps lower. It's established very early on, before they even get to the island, that Margot is of a different class than everyone else. When she and Tyler, who's played by Nicholas Holt, are going over on the boat, he's lapping up something that, you know, she asks, is that literal pond scum? And he's just extolling the brilliance of this, you know, seaweed 
weed that he's eating. And yeah, she's having none of it. And then, of course, when they get there and they're in line, the maitre d' at the restaurant, played by Hong Chow, the character's name is Elsa, she immediately says, you're not supposed to be here. So before we've really absorbed uh, any of the details, before we have any of the background on this restaurant, before we've even met Chef Slowick, it's established that, yes, there's a glitch in the matrix uh, here. Because, yeah, uh, what is it, what does every other guest have in common? None of them are people who produce anything. They're all people who, in different ways, rent-seek off of fine dining and off this restaurant, in, in some cases in particular. You've got the food critic who helped create Slowick's reputation. You've also got the, the business bros you mentioned, who you've got a guy in the room who's actually it was an angel investor in the restaurant who now owns it and took ownership of it during the pandemic. And, you know, you have Tyler, who is just like this sycophantic foodie, but also, you know, I think we're supposed to take is is an influencer who, you know, makes his own money by, you know, eating expensive meals and then just posting about it. And then, of course, you know, there's a scene at the end where he's actually asked by Slowick to cook something in the kitchen and forget actually knowing how to assemble a dish. He doesn't even know how to cut vegetables properly. He's completely useless. So I think much of the film is driven and, you know, the Slowick character played by Ray Fiennes, he is animated, as you've said already well by a resentment that his craft, that his art, that his vocation has to kind of depend on all of these people who are coming to eat food that they don't produce and who in many cases have careers that are directly linked to his restaurant but are just parasitic on the work he does and don't have any actual value add. So when I say that this movie is kind of 60 or 65% where I want it to be, a lot of what I like about it is that the Chef Slowick character really is an artist compared to all these people. Taste savor, relish, consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful, but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. The movie's separation of him, this elite chef who is nevertheless an artist, from all of the sort of pond scum who eat at his restaurant, (laughs) I do like. One could make the case that the movie is pretty broad. A lot of the supporting characters are a little two-dimensional. And what it does with the Anya Taylor-Joy character of having her sort of revealed as this exemplar of working-class virtue, you know, a little heavy-handed. I'm not sure I would put it quite so strongly. I don't think it's particularly subtle, but I wouldn't call it heavy-handed. I think it's a conceit that's interesting and that the film, you know, follows through on in a pretty non-didactic way, to use a word that we've long abused on this podcast. This is one of our many sort of semi-regular disagreements that's not really a disagreement at all. It's just, yeah, glass half full versus glass half empty kind of thing. I actually think that your sense of film enjoyment is different than mine because you watch more films and you have watched more films. I mean, I've watched a lot. I mean, Will's been watching films since his age was in the single digits. He's been watching, you know, films daily, sometimes multiple films. And now he has two now podcasts. I'm jaded. Now I'm burnt out. Now, now I need a harder hit. I need the pure stuff injected straight into my eyeball. Well, you're being flippant, but that actually is kind of what I'm getting at. There's, there's I just think that I, I think I just see something like this. <laughs> and I've seen fewer movies that are these, you know, tightly executed middle budget films with smart conceits that are an entertaining diversion on a weeknight. So I think when I see them, I'm like, oh, that's fun. I like this movie. Good for the director. Good for the actors. Good for the screenwriter. And I see it and I'm saying, why is it not Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. There are fewer movies like this than there used to be. So there is something to be said about one that that, that actually comes along and does a decent job and has a little something on its mind. Yeah, and a, a detail, by the way, we probably should have mentioned earlier is the director of this film, Mark Millaud, was also one of the main directors on Succession. And among the film's producers are, uh, are Adam McKay, who, of course, produced Succession also. So there is sort of a, a you know a brain trust at the moment that is writing this stuff, getting it greenlit, which I think has uh, played a, a significant role in turning it into the sort of subgenre that it now is. Director Mike Mylod also directed Ali G in the House. Did you see that one, the Ali G movie? I'm actually a complete Ali G virgin. I've seen like a handful of clips where he's talking to Tony Benn and things like that, but I've, I've never really like gotten into Ali G. I mean, back uh, in 2006, when you could download it on, uh, I don't know, Kazaa, whatever we had back then, uh, <laughs> CG++, or what was, what was that fucking dorm room streaming thing? Uh, I'm embarrassed whenever these streaming things come up, because yeah, it, it throws me back in time in uncomfortable ways, yeah, to the days when I was like lost logging onto E-Bombs World every day. No, it was DC++ if you, had a, if you had a PC and it was Shakespeare if you had a Mac. This was That's the, right. This was the U of T dorm uh, sharing platform. You could download Barry Lyndon in, in 20 seconds and get a nice 480p file of Barry Lyndon. Yeah, just sit there, watch it on your 12-inch computer screen and just think like, I have never known luxury like this. <laughs> I want for nothing. I will just say to return to the movie that as someone who actually worked in a restaurant, I actually pretty strongly identify with Chef Slowick's uh, resentment towards many of these people. I mean, I used to go into the restaurant and work these shifts that sometimes lasted as long as 12 hours. And it's not just cooking. It's also cleaning with chemicals that burn your hands and constantly getting these cuts and scrapes and like oil burns and things like that. You're making the food. You're getting your, I think, the minimum wage was $7.15 an hour at the time. And that's Canadian dollars, so that's even less than it sounds to you Americans listening. And, you know, I don't want to beat up on these guys because they were being exploited as well. But, like, I could never get my head around the fact that the servers who are just bringing the food out to people, like, they only had to work four-hour shifts. They would come in for a rush, and they're getting all these tips. When they finish their shift, they still look immaculate because they have to. They have to be in the dining room around what was, you know, sometimes, a you know, a university clientele, but also sometimes at least a fine dining adjacent clientele. Whereas, you know, my cook's uniform is just covered in like cranberry sauce and oil and it's just completely disgusting. And then at the top of it, yeah, there's owners who were actually people you would very rarely see and then once in a while they would come in and they would com- they would say that your presentation wasn't good enough or uh, that's not how much Dijon mustard goes on this sandwich you know that kind of thing so I uh, I sympathize with his feelings here something else that's worth talking about before we get to how the film concludes and which jumps off slightly from uh, what Sam was talking about in his article from Vulture a year ago the film does satirize the food I mean it is obviously making fun in a way that is yeah decided unsubtle of, you know, aspects of fine dining culture, of this kind of overly curated, overly immaculate, excessively immaculately presented one percenter cuisine. You know, there's the bread course that's uh, served without bread. And, you know, there's some bullshit about how the, the, the 
absence of the bread is supposed to make you meditate on the human condition or, or something like that. Because bread is a working class food and these people are anything but working class. That's right. Then there's the wine that they get, which is served, quote, not just from a single vineyard, but from a single vine. There's another wine that is presented with, quote, notes of oak, rich cherry and tobacco and a faint sense of longing and regret. So this isn't just the regular dining experience. This isn't just here's some food that's well made by, you know, people who know food and that tastes really good and that will, you know, leave you feeling satisfied and that you'll remember after. And, you know, I don't know, maybe the ambiance around you is nice. Maybe the food's nicely presented. It's it's beyond that. It's food that has to have a mythology constructed around it and a mythology that's really quite artificial. Obviously, there are associations you have with food beyond the taste or beyond whether it fills you up or not. But the film is clearly satirizing the more ridiculous side of fine dining. At the same time, I mean, I think you could easily make the case that the film is sort of partaking in food porn as well, right? And I mean, the, the movie does, in its way, have a certain amount of respect for the Ray Fiennes character as an artist or an artisan. It's sympathetic to the fact that his ambition and his artistry has been spoiled by the customers that he has to serve. And I mean, of course, you know, uh, presentation is an important part of like, if you go to chef school, they teach you about presentation. I, I was never a chef. I was just a lowly cook. I did learn a lot from the chefs in the restaurant. There were some really, really good ones, including the guy who originally designed the menu, the head chef. Uh, shout out to Dan. If you're in Hamilton, uh, check out the Burnt Tongue, which is the restaurant that he helped found after. But I mean, one of the things that one of the first things I was taught was to, you know, treat the plate, like think about the plate, divide it up mentally into like little visual chunks, and then think about the proportions of food that you're putting on each one. So that's, that's a part of, you know, the the culinary arts, obviously. But the thing about the food you see in this film is it, it often feels like the presentation is the whole point. The whole point is how it looks when it arrives and whatever sort of diaphanous mythological story you can graft onto it if you're a food critic or if you're an obsequious food influencer like Tyler. The film is not doing one or the other. It's doing both. It is both satirizing fine dining while also kind of being like, look at how amazing this food looks. But the movie has a complication in its third act, not unlike the one in Ratatouille when, for the snooty food critic, the rat prepares peasant food. You know, a dish of ratatouille that reconnects the snooty food critic with his childhood love of food. In this one, the working class Anya Taylor-Joy character asks for a hamburger, a simple hamburger. And this unlocks something in the Ray Fiennes character, or in some way reconnects him with his love of the art itself. A bit of a populist touch there from the movie to connect it with, you know, that most humble of dishes, the hamburger. A hamburger is something you get when you're really hungry. And it's something that's pretty hard to turn into like you can't do with a hamburger really what the restaurant does with you know pond scum and things like that a hamburger if it's competently done can be absolutely delicious and satisfying and it can also satisfy you know the most fundamental quality of food which is whether it fills you up or not Niels yes chef is the fryer still on yes chef crinkle cut or julienne there are a few other important details that emerge uh, towards the end of the movie. We won't go through everything. You know, there's the uh, the cat and mouse game where the men are invited to run off and uh, see if they can escape the staff. And of course, they're all caught. Sloak invites Margot, uh, since, you know, she's not quote unquote supposed to be there, to choose. You know, he tells her everybody's going to die. We're going to do a, a mass suicide. Uh, but he gives her the choice. Do you want to die with the staff or do you want to die with the guests? Uh, she's not sure. And so he chooses the staff for her. Uh, 
Uh, we learn that Margot was actually hired as an escort by Richard, who's uh, part of the wealthy couple in the dining room. She refused to see him anymore after he hired her and asked her uh, to pretend to be his daughter. Uh, we also learn, and this is very important, that uh, Tyler actually knew in advance that all the guests were going to be killed. And despite this, he was such a sycophant about food influencer culture and looked up to Slowick so much uh, that he uh, wanted to participate anyway. And he hired Margot to replace his ex. I guess, you know, he's uh, broken up with his girlfriend or probably more likely she's broken up with him recently uh, because he's not allowed to come alone. So he's hired this sex worker and brought her to this island uh, knowing that they're all going to be killed because, you know, she's just uh, she's just an object to him in, in multiple senses. Well, because of her request of the cheeseburger, Slowick allows Margot to leave the island. Everyone else at the island goes down with the island in one final blaze with the last course of the meal, a beautiful s'mores dessert. And the last shot is Anya Taylor-Joy, Margot, eating the cheeseburger on the boat back to the mainland. I do think it's worth discussing the ending. And here I want to turn back to, uh, if you want, the challenge that uh, Sam Adler Bell presents us in his uh, Vulture piece. Where, you know, he points out that some films and shows that operate within this particular mode have the effect of, as he put it, dissipating class rage. Because even though the victims or targets are always these absurd caricatures, you know, cartoonishly evil people, uh, they're still people. And so there's a possibility that the ultimate kind of conclusion of uh, a film like this and, and a number of others, that it's kind of taking a conservative turn at the end. And it's saying, oh, look at how horrible all of this is. Like, you came here seeking revenge. But then uh, Chef Slowick made that guy, Jeremy, who was a cook, just, you know, stab himself in front of everyone. All these people were burned alive. I have to say, because this film seemed to be drawing somewhat from the horror genre, I don't actually think, even though I think there's something to what Sam is uh, observing there, I don't actually really, I don't think I would agree, I don't think I would share that assessment of how this film ends, because ultimately I can only read it on a symbolic level. Like, obviously, if I was reading a newspaper article about something like this happening in real life, I wouldn't be like, ah, you know, yeah, that guy who was forced to stab himself in the kitchen, or that couple that was burned alive, it doesn't matter, they're, you know, they're rich. But I mean, for me, the film only works if you treat it symbolically. So I read the violence in the movie and the kind of uh, comeuppance element in the same way that you would interpret a good horror movie, where the horror itself or the violence is not really the point. The point is whatever the violence symbolizes or whatever exists around the violence. And perhaps I'm just saying this because I enjoyed the film, but I don't really interpret the ending as a conservative one. Yeah, I don't think it's any more conservative than any sort of populist entertainment that restores a sense of normalcy at the end. One last thing I'll say about this movie is, you know, the political use value of movies or any popular art form is not so much in inspiring revolutionary change, of course, but in <laughs> taking the temperature of the ambient wisdom of the time. And watching this movie again, one movie I thought of was Falling Down, the Michael Douglas classic <laughs> from the 90s, where you know, that Michael Douglas character has, in a very different context, in a very different time, enacts a similar sort of revenge fantasy. And we, as an audience, are allowed to sort of live vicariously through a madman who enacts a revenge fantasy against people who maybe, sort of, kind of deserve it. And now both these movies are very obvious attempts to capture the zeitgeist. They're not just passively absorbing ambient wisdom, they're sort of deliberately hooking into it. 
And so if you take these movies as just sort of uh, representing the median of where a sort of, you know, Democratic Party voting audience going to a movie is, it speaks a lot to how things have changed in 30 years and who the median person thinks the enemies are. Come on, baby! 